You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. The thing about mothers, I want to say, is that once the containment ends and one becomes two, you don't always fit together so neatly. They don't get you like you want them to, like you think they should, they could, if only they would pay closer attention. They agonize over all the wrong things, cycling through one inane idea after another, seatbelts, flossing, the golden rule. The living mother-daughter relationship you learn over and over again is a constant choice between adaptation or acceptance. The only mothers who never embarrass, harass, dismiss, discount, deceive, distort, neglect, baffle, appall, inhibit, incite, insult, or age poorly are dead mothers, perfectly contained in photographs, pressed into two dimensions like a golden autumn leaf. That's your consolation prize, Millie Tanner. Your mother will never be caught sunbathing in the driveway in her bra or cheapened by too much drink. She'll never be overheard bitching to the phone company or seen slamming her bedroom door in fury. Your mother will always be perfect. But who would say such things to a girl so electric with envy? Kelly Corrigan is the author of Lift and the Middle Place. She's a contributor to O, the Oprah magazine, Good Housekeeping and Medium. She co-founded Notes and Words, an annual benefit for the Oakland Children's Hospital. Her new book is a memoir, Glitter and Glue. Thank you for joining me, Kelly. Sure. I'm so happy to be here. This is such an interesting book, and it's so craftily put together because you time-slice two different stories, and you do it so subtly and in such an amazing manner that we don't really notice that it's happening until almost after we finish reading the book. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about whether or not you, before you set about writing the book, whether you conceived each story separately in your mind or on paper. So two things happen. One is that this is the first, in some ways, this is the first book I ever tried to write. So I went to Australia. I was a nanny for a family whose mother had recently died. I lived in this house with these two small kids, this widower, his stepson, so the the woman who died, son from a first marriage who was 20-something, and then the woman who died's father, so this man's father-in-law, and me. And it was the most unusual situation I had ever been in in my life. And I always wanted to write as a 12-year-old, as a 16-year-old. All through college, I was submitting things to our creative writing magazine. And then this story to me seemed like the most interesting thing that had ever happened to me. And so when I came home, I started writing. And I wrote for six months, and I sent 38 pages to my professor and uh, creative writing professor back at University of Richmond from college. And we worked like that for a while, but I really, at that point, didn't know the difference between a publisher and an editor and an agent, and I didn't know a single person who did. I mean, I was as far from that world of publishing as a kid could be. And so I set it aside, and I went back to work at United Way. And then I wrote The Middle Place, and it did well. And then I put Lift out, and that did nicely. And then they said, "Um, people are very curious about your mother. And I said, I'm very curious about my mother, more and more so each day. She's sort of changing colors 
to me, every time I look at her, she seems slightly different than the woman I had her fixed in my mind as yesterday. And so for some reason, I went back to those Australia pages way back from 1992. And I think what I realized is that that experience of being a nanny in that house was the first time that I had anything in common with my mother. We don't look alike. We don't like the same movies. We don't drink the same drinks. We hardly like the same people. We don't vote the same way. We don't do the same things on Sunday mornings. Um, And she didn't go to college. And she never worked in a company. So what had we ever had to talk about or connect over? And then I was in this house living uh, the life of, you know, kind of a a quote-unquote mother. And I was driving carpool, and I was meeting teachers, and I was making sandwiches poorly. And and I was looking after these kids, and I was starting to have a higher regard for domestic life and how challenging making family is. And I was observing what these people were going through and how they were trying to put it back together. And then I was just also feeling kind of the everyday slings and arrows of being with young children and how incredibly frustrating and tiring that can be. And so those two stories started to merge in my mind that this was really the beginning of a new way of thinking about my mother. And so maybe I should tell that story in the larger context of who my mother was and who she is to me now. Why were people asking about your mother? Because in the middle place, uh, so the first line of the middle place is the thing you need to know about me is I'm George Corrigan's daughter. So I think that in the same way that like negative space begs attention, people wanted to know uh, how did my mother feel about that opening line and how did my mother feel about the middle place uh, overall? And that was a book, you know, my father and I both had cancer at the same time. So it was necessarily about the two of us. And also we have a very special, easy relationship. But what I had come to realize is that my mother enabled that easiness. I mean, she kept that relationship clean and simple by taking the hits herself. So she drew the fouls and let my father be the star for me. And that's really where the title of the book comes from is your father's the glitter and I'm the glue which is what my mom used to say, which couldn't be more true. You know, one of the things that struck me as I read this book was the really interesting and complicated sense of characterization you found yourself faced with because you have to create yourself, you have uh, the family you're with. I'd like you to talk just about creating these different characters in prose and also, you know, excavating something from, what, 20 years ago mm-hmm. and, and looking at that piece of writing, that's a different, that's a markedly different person who wrote that first book. Oh, sure. You mean the girl I was at, in 1992? Sure. Sure. And I really wanted to capture that. That's why it's written, the, the 1992 section, the section when I'm a nanny in Australia, is written present tense. And I was really trying to capture um, how foolishly cocky I was at 24 and how sure of myself I was. So I was very big-headed about what kind of person I was going to be. And I was going to be interesting with a capital I. I was going to be an adventurer. You know, I was going to have ripping yarns to tell. And that's really why I went traveling, was to collect these stories so that I could hold my audiences with these incredible tales of daring do. 
And the fact is, the most interesting story I can tell you is the story of living with the Tanners. There's nothing, to me, there's nothing more interesting than family life to me. And so all these people who are collecting their uh, tall tales, you know, they need to go tell them at another bar because the stories that I'm interested in is how are people making great families? How are they keeping them together? How are they surviving um, these terrible, terrible losses? Um, so that that was one thing that I was really eager to try to capture was that 24-year-old voice. The other thing is I am a journal keeper. To, even to this day, I have a longhand journal uh, in my kitchen, and when I have a few minutes, I pull it out and put some stuff down. Now I do it very pointedly because I know I'm going to want detailed information about today, five years from now, when I'm trying to look back on this time. But I kept an incredible journal when I was in Australia because I had so much time on my hands. You know, the kids would go to school, and I, I didn't have a car. I was stuck in this house for hours and hours and hours with nothing to do but write and read. Um, so I had that to look back on. And then I have tons of photographs. So I know exactly what the house looks like. I know what the people look like. Um, and they were vivid to me anyway. I It would be interesting. We'll never know how much of um, what I recall about them is aided by the photographs and the journals. But they feel, they feel like they're very vivid to me. Like I can remember that time fairly well. I mean, I'm sure of course, like all memoirists, that I'm remembering one version of the story, and it would be fascinating to hear other versions. But they're very vivid to me, these people. I mean, they really struck me. And they're people, not to go on and on, but they're people that I would never know other, under other circumstances. And that's true also of my mother. So if my mother and I met each other at a party, we would, you know, say our exchange pleasantries and move on, both of us. I would be too much for her, and she would be too little for me. And same with these tanners. They're very quiet, introverted people. They're, they are not social butterflies. They don't want to go out late. They don't stand on a table and tell jokes. And they're very hard to get to know. And therefore, especially at 24, I think I would have been too much of a busybody to slow down long enough to pay attention to them. Same with my mom. And so another thing that was interesting to me when I was looking back at these pages is that my mother and the Tanners were the first people like that, introverts, quiet, hard to get to know, that I knew, that I had been exposed to. And both of them were people that were forced upon me because I lived with them. They were either my family or they were my, you know, makeshift family while I was in Australia. You know what? That's really interesting because, for example, John, he's a a vivid character, but we only really ever see him from the outside. You Mm -hmm. never really get to know him much. Mm -hmm. And that's a very interesting style of characterization, Uh, a a completely external look at somebody. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's all I had. I don't have, you know, I, I never did really have a strong sense of him. He was... A man in the crisis of his life, he was a pilot. Uh, sorry, he wasn't a pilot. He was a um, steward on Qantas. And, you know, he did his three-day stint. So he would go do some international flights. He'd be away for two nights or three nights. And then he'd be home, and we'd be stepping on each other's toes because he really actually didn't need me when he was there. He only needed someone regularly when he was in the air. And 
you know, he spent a lot of time in his room and he ran a lot of errands and he was a quiet guy. And so I didn't have I didn't have any choice but to characterize him from the outside because I didn't have any other additional information about him. But the really interesting thing about him to me was that at the very end of living with the Tanners, they showed me a video from how their parents met because their their father was in community theater and their mother was in the chorus and that's how they met these two people and he was the lead and I remember almost falling off my chair thinking I can't believe this shy man who seems so in the weeds as you would be was out there singing and dancing and beating his chest he was it was Fiddler on the Roof um, and he was the dad, you know, and and the scene that they showed me on the video, he was so bold and physical and um, had such enormous presence. And I thought, I don't know you at all. I, here I have lived in your house for four or five months, and I really don't know you. You know, one of the things that's interesting to me is the way that you come into this, because you're young, you're happy, you're the world, you know, things happen when you leave the house. That's your motto. Mm -hmm. So you get out of the house and then you find yourself stuck in another house. I know. And I'd like you to just talk about that and putting yourself in this house where there's been this tragedy and you also have a character in here who you have to create completely in absentia, and, that, and that's the mother. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, you know, the big idea with the trip was I'm going to go out there and do things and see things and become interesting. And so I was envisioning, you know, bungee jumping and flying small planes over fjords and walking on the Fox Glacier and hiking to Ayers Rock and that kind of thing, you know, kind of outward boundy type stuff. And then, you know, adventure costs a lot of money. <laughs> and I hadn't been on the road very long before it started to feel like, oh, my God, I'm going to be back on my mother's doorstep in a month if I don't find a job. And so I was traveling with my best friend, Tracy, and we thought we got to find jobs waitressing because that's where the action is. We'll meet people. We were, you know, young and boy crazy, so we wanted to meet cute Aussie blokes. And we went to... I mean, we probably went to a dozen restaurants asking for jobs, and nobody would bend the rules for us. And so we went to the paper, and the paper had this section for uh, nannies, people wanting nannies. And I took this job with this family, and uh, not the Tanners, and I got fired, uh, you know, in a matter of days. They called me to the kitchen, and they said that they that I was the first American they'd ever had. They usually had Asians, and I was also quite old. I was 24 instead of 18 which was their usual age. And they thought I was a little too unionized because I asked about, you know, they, the, the ad said six hours a day, and it was definitely pushing into like nine or ten hours. And then the thing that she asked me to do that really, that I really pushed back on was she asked me to scrub the pool tiles of their indoor pool. And I thought, this is not nannying. And so I, you know, I said, I, I would... But I'm just wondering, like, does this count in the six hours or is this additional? Like, is this are we cutting a side deal for me to also do housekeeping stuff? And then that led to me being canned, um, which led to me taking this job because the ad said widower looking for live in nanny. And I don't necessarily think 
that had I not been fired, I would have been open to diving into a situation that was that fraught. Um, so yeah, it was a strange set of circumstances that landed me there. And it was definitely not what I had in mind when I set out for my great round the world trip. You know, this book has such an interesting plot. The plot is a plot of character. It's about what happens to you and um, not only who you are, but your vision of your mother and your understanding mm -hmm. of these other people and you becoming mature. I'd like you to just talk about creating this plot of characterization, character revelation, as it were. You know, there isn't any creating in memoir. I mean, it's really um, recalling and recounting more than um, creating. That's the that's a, a good word for fiction. But where nonfiction is concerned, it's really trying to remember and confess where you were as a 24-year-old and where you got to via a certain set of exp experiences. So but the I job was to admit... Mm -hmm. that this is how small your perspective was initially, that this is how limited you were in your understanding of this woman who raised you. And to admit that even at 24, you hadn't really invested much time at all trying to figure out who your mother was when you weren't around before she had you, since she, since you'd left the house. You know, I hadn't invested in understanding her for a really long time. I mean, you know, the sad truth is that I think to many children, their mother is just their mother for quite a long time. The idea that this woman that's raising you has a life beyond the scope of raising you is comes to people at different ages, but it often comes as a revelation that she has friendships, she has pursuits, she has um, aspirations that don't include me, that aren't about me. Um and I think that's necessarily where all mother-child relationships begin, which is you are the center of the world as the child. And then as you grow older, you detach and you create your independent self. And that necessarily creates an independent mother that is then far enough away from you that you can take her in, you know, like a piece of art. I mean, you're just standing a little too close in the beginning. And then as years accumulate, you get the distance from this woman to actually look at her and appreciate her in a more complete, comprehensive way. You know, I, I agree with you that memoirs are, are an act of remembering, but I think that the actual prose and the way you put this together is very creative. I mean, oh, good. I, I think that there's a lot of creativity, and I think you use a lot of techniques that would be super subtle in fiction, even though there are nonfiction in terms of the way you cut between um, what's happening to you as a 24-year-old and your vision, your slow understanding as a 24-year-old of who your mother is, but also you're at the same time, there's another you who's present in this book who's the one who's writing the book and right, looking back. Right, right, So It's hard. It's really hard. There were actually times when I would read through a section and think, and all I was looking for were anachronisms, so to speak, like things that I would not have known or understood as a 24-year-old that had somehow snuck their way into the story. Because if you're going to tell it in present tense, then you have to be religious about weeding out anything that a 24-year-old would not have been able to understand, which is a lot. 
So there were definitely days where I went on the, on a witch hunt for anything that was my 46-year-old self opining on something from 1992. Well, too, I, I think one of the things that's interesting in the book, and let's go to page uh, 75, 475, there are parts of the book where you seem to be coming to an understanding of yourself in the prose itself. Yes, all the time. I think that's why I write. I mean, I think that... Uh, so so just read this, the, the paragraph uh, on that's on 75. Because I think okay, that's a great. pretty good example of that. So just to tee it up, um, there was this kid in our neighborhood who was a really uh, tough customer. And he was a real troublemaker. And he one night took a spray can, a, pan, a can of um, black spray paint, and he went to this underpass on the way to our street, and he wrote, the witch is having a sale, brooms $1, supplies limited, act now, 168 Wooded Lane, which was our address. So basically this kid wrote, Mary Corrigan is a witch, underneath this underpass that hundreds of people pass through every day. And it's where our school bus came, and the school bus drove right past it every day. And... I was stunned at my mom's reaction, which was very little. I mean, it was just, ugh, kids. And I thought that is just unbelievable. And also I was livid because it reflected on me, too. And I was your typical 12-year-old self-centered tween who, I don't care how this makes you feel, Mom, but this is not good for me to have my mother being called a witch with my address under this uh, on this concrete. So this is the end of that chapter. In a matter of days, the message was covered by a sloppy black rectangle, but when the sun angled in, you could still see our address. On bad days, when I'd had a blow-up with my mother over cutting my hair in her bathroom and clogging her sink, or using a certain dismissive tone with her that she wouldn't use to talk to a criminal, I'd think maybe Harry Morrison had it right. More often, I felt a strange, powerful mix of pity and chemical anger. It was my first taste of protective wrath, the kind that only mothers are said to possess. And I think this is, we see so many moments like this in this book where you are having conversations with yourself about mm-hmm. your life. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a really interesting. And the way they're woven in and the compulsive readability of the whole project uh, is really fascinating. And I'm wondering how much of this, you know, you had to just work out and then work over and how mm-hmm. much of it just would pour off the tip of your heartfelt pen. Uh, you know, one thing that happens to me a lot, so I like a shorter story, so I like, and I like small moments, so I like a small thing that's told um, in its entirety, and I like that to read in a single sitting. Like, I would never want to, I would never want someone to feel like they had to stop in the middle of an anecdote or a chapter. I want you to read the whole chapter through, and therefore, that's what I'm, that's an, an incentive to me to keep it tight. But one thing that happens to me a lot, and it's happening to me right now in a new project, is I will put on a note card that I'm going to tell a certain story. You know, like the the time I tried to curl my mom, curl my hair with my mom's curlers, and she caught me, and I got in trouble. And then I'll start to write it, and then I'll think, I don't know what's important about this. I don't know why I want to tell this story. I can't remember even why I put it on this note card. 
But I have faith that there's a reason. There's a reason I remember it. There's a reason I put it on the note card three weeks ago or whenever that was. There's a reason I started to type it out two days ago. And I'm just going to have to let it sit there until it tells me what it is doing in this book. And I would say that the occasions where I actually couldn't ever make sense of something or didn't feel that it was, it had enough meaning to merit inclusion in the book is one in a hundred. So now after three books, I have total faith that if there's something I feel like I, there's some little story I think I should tell, I should definitely tell it. And if I just wait long enough, I'll figure out why. That's so fascinating. Now, I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, creating the character of your mother in this book. She's so interesting, and we really like her. And and what's interesting is the way we get to know her. We get a, a slice of her up front, and then she kind of creeps in, and we get to know her because you see her in yourself. Mm-hmm. kind of creeping in mm-hmm. and uh, this is to a certain degree every many women's fears is that mm-hmm. I'm going to become my mother mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so the interesting thing I mean one really fundamental thing about my mom is she's great in a crisis and she's not somebody that wants to go to a cocktail party or have long phone conversations with you. She doesn't want to go shopping. She doesn't really want to go out to lunch. She is, her favorite expression is that she's going to go upstairs, take off her bra, and have a party for one, which means just sit in her bed with her book and nobody disturb her. So that's who you get kind of on a day-to-day level. But the minute that crisis strikes, so in my case I had cancer and then I had to have some surgeries after that, Um, My husband lost his job. We had something going on with one of our kids. In those situations, um, she's so front and center. She's so effective. She has lists. She has uh, little second um, opinions that she's going to get for you. She has a plan for how she's going to get out there during your second chemo. She talked to somebody at Bridge that afternoon about a little idea she has for your daughter. She heard that there's a job opening such and such for your husband. You know, she that's how she loves is by showing up uh, when the chips are down. And so the book starts with me having to have my ovaries removed, which was related to my cancer, and her coming to town and, um, you know, kind of doing the, the Florence Nightingale routine the way that she does it, which is not emotional, there's no flowers. She doesn't like pet your head. She gets things done. She she GSC gets shit done, and um, so that's where it starts. And that's really important to me because it's a side of her that I'm not sure I saw until I was an adult. And I often feel that if she had died young, as the mother did in this Tanner family, I would have had such an incomplete understanding of her. It would have been so skewed toward. Um, this rigid disciplinarian, which is what's required of uh, the parent of a teenager, any parent of any teenager, um, is just relentlessly holding your line um, just to get your kids through it alive. And so that's what I, that was what was salient to me about her for so long. And then I got into a jam. And then she showed me this whole other side of her. Um, so I wanted to talk about that. I also think 
actually, the idea that she was able to hold her line. There were three of us. I have two older brothers, and we're both, all three of us are willful people who um, probably without her intervention would have gone down a much different road than we've gone down. And she was really willing to have those arguments in a way that very few parents are, I think, and a way that I sometimes am finding that I, I can't sustain it. I often find myself giving in, and I think, oh, my God, my mother never would have done this. She would have been able to stand up to me, but I'm tired, and this kid is winning. My 12-year-old is winning. I hope she's not listening to this because if you are, you're not winning. But so these are the kinds of things that I think about now when I think about my mother is, holy God, this is a job. This is a job for fools. There's no win situation. Nobody gets out of this thing alive. And you just hope that you get to have that whole second act with your children where they get to know you as a human being instead of as the very thing between them and everything they want. When you arrive in Australia, you, you, at the, we meet the Tanners and you move in. And I'd like you to just talk about creating their very unique and interesting family dynamic because mm-hmm. it's – it's something I've never encountered before. I don't think anybody ever has. Yeah. And I think you do a, a fabulous job of creating that and then taking it back as you become your mother in yeah. that family yeah. dynamic. Um, well, I definitely heard my mother in my head constantly, all the time. I mean, in every situation where I was, you know, kind of coming up with two solutions when I needed really one solution, she was the deciding vote in my mind. You know, she would always pipe in um, some little piece of advice that she had said a thousand times growing up would come to me and then I would act on it. Um, But that family was was so tricky. So this woman, Meg Tanner, met this man, Jim, in this play and she had already had a family and she brought with her to the marriage – her eldest son, and her father, who was a widow at that time, a widower by that time. And then together with her new husband, they had these two small kids, and then she died. So at one point, I think of it as like uh, a poker hand where it's an inside straight, where you're drawing for, you know, the jack. You have the nine and the ten and the queen and the king. And, you know, those just don't work out that often. I mean, that's a very tricky hand to play. It was also made much more complicated by grief, which is, even in the best of circumstances, a complicated thing where people respond differently and people uh, heal and seem to heal at different rates and they heal in different ways. And there are many, many challenges around who seems to be getting over things too fast or too slowly, um, who laughs first, who wants to go on a date after someone dies, who... Um, seems to be enjoying life again the soonest. Um, And all of those issues were at play in this house. Um, You know, here you have this father who lost his daughter. Then you have this man who lost his wife. And then you have these two kids who lost their mother. And then you have this 20-year-old boy who's living in a room over the garage who lost his mom. Um, And it's tricky. And they're all... They all have a right to do it however they want to do it, you know, to work through that year or two years or whatever that period is where the grief is primary. 
you know, before it recedes to a secondary, it's more permanent position. But those years when it is hanging inside every moment, everybody's working through it differently. And that's incredibly complicated. And the odds of people grieving well together or grieving in a way that's harmonious, if not synchronous, are very low. You know, one of the things I think that you do very well in this book is to describe a situation which, as you just suggested, was is infused with grief, but without immersing the readers in grief or the normal language of grief. You give us a great vision of just living, and I think that was a, a very interesting choice on your part. You know, I think that that's one of the things that's the most interesting about grief is that um, even though your mother died, you still are going to school and you still need to put your clothes on and brush your teeth and find your other sock and get your backpack and hop in the car and put on your seatbelt. I mean, you know, the kind of relentless tide of everyday life just keeps on coming no matter whether you feel that, you, you know, the world has gone from color to black and white you still have to participate in it. And I think the truth of those situations is in the small moments. I don't think that summary or exposition will do um, very often. And I don't think that it's mine to describe. So I wasn't grieving. I did not lose someone. I was just observing a family um, on the heels of the great, great loss. And so it wouldn't have been appropriate for me to you know, write too much about what they felt. I could only write about what they were doing and what it looked like. In this book, as we read it, there's a lot of interesting different kind of tension points that keep us reading and really immersed in them. I think one of the most interesting things that I enjoyed was the relationship between you and Evan. Mm-hmm. I think you do a great job drawing that and it's it's just seems so right and mm-hmm. and perfect. Talk about it, experiencing that, but also crafting it over three versions: your original journals, mm-hmm. your first attempt to write it up, and then this book. That's, mm-hmm. There's three different times mm-hmm. you had stabs you took at that. Yes, yes, it's true. Um, so this boy, I was 24, and this boy I think was about 20. It does I couldn't figure it out quite from my journals, but I know he was younger than I was, and. He was Meg's son and her first son, and he lived in the garage, and he was a guy who worked at a grocery store at night stacking shelves, and he was a rover, which is like an Eagle Scout. Um, So he's really into the great outdoors. He was a total nature lover. And we were very – we are probably – I haven't seen him in 20 years, but we were very, very different people. Um, And But we ended up spending a lot of time together because he worked nights. So he would come into the house from the garage, usually in his boxer shorts, and sit and watch soap operas. He watched Santa Barbara religiously. And so we got into the soap opera together, and then we got into the crosswords together. And then he tried to teach me how to play chess, which was sort of a bust. But he that's that's a good um, indicator of the kind of guy he was. Like he could he could slowly painstakingly teach someone how to play chess who really had no shot ever of learning how to play chess and I just developed this 
fondness for him that was just enormous. And I don't know if it was, I don't know if I would have been, I certainly, if I had met him at a party, I don't think that we would have connected because he's very shy. Um, I don't know how much of my fondness for him was related to the fact that his mom had recently died and I could feel this um, kind of tenderness or this need in him to connect with somebody. Um, and, you know, it was it's incredibly appealing to feel like you're being useful to somebody, like maybe you're going to be just a little pivot point for him, you know, a way to re-engage with the world and someone new to know and a reason to come in the house and a reason to take a shower. And, you know, and maybe when you leave, they're just a little bit more ready to participate in the world again. Um, so I don't know if I was kind of seduced by that idea of like, I could really help this person, which is what could be more seductive than thinking you could help someone. And, um, but also he was real cute. I mean, he's a really good looking guy. Um, and, uh, yeah, so we just flirted mercilessly for the whole time. And then I started to think that it was all in my mind and that I was the only, you know, that between the two of us, I was the one who was, uh, you know, going to sleep with uh, him on my mind, and the the reverse was not true. Um, but then finally, uh, we made out <laughs> in the kitchen for a long time, twenty thirty minutes, just passionately making out against the the refrigerator. And then and then I had to leave a couple days later. You know, one of the things that I uh, really enjoyed about this book were your various fantasies. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know that is in my journal. That's straight from my journal because. Every boy that I met at that time, when I was 24, and probably going back to when I was 20, you know, those those years when you start to take dating more seriously and you think, you know, any one of these people could be the one. Like, this could start, you know, something could happen now. It could be, like, really my spouse. And so everyone I met when I was in Australia, I thought, like, hmm, I wonder if it's you. Is it you? You look kind of cute. So, like, the kid's teacher, Jessica's um sorry, Millie's teacher uh, was just so adorable. And so I started started with a big crush on him where he was really the one that was getting me to take a shower every day and like print my hair and look good when I every time I dropped this little girl off. And then uh, and then I transferred all that uh, to Evan. Talk about the uh, dynamics between the two two children, Martin and Millie. Martin, the, you do a great job of making them adorable, but not too adorable. Oh, thanks. I'm glad. Um, it's a hard book to write, right? Because there are a lot of landmines. I mean, you could get super nostalgic and sappy. You could get overly sentimental. They could be too adorable. It could be too, uh, you know, ridden with grief. Um, so I'm glad that it worked for you. Uh, but these kids... Uh, they were so great. I mean, I, I, I really, I really loved them. I mean, I think they were like the first kids I ever loved. And, um, he was four and there was not a stranger in the world to him. And he, you know, the second morning I was there, just popped into the kitchen in his underwear with his big plastic sword and, uh, you know, took my hand and showed me all around. And, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't have befriended me faster. And she was seven which is a lot older, and she's a girl. And she was wise to what this meant, that they were had were going to transition from using friends and family to get through this time to actually hiring someone. And there was this incredibly, um, uh, just like a poignant moment where 
the little boy uh, realized that I was being paid. And he just, it, he just didn't know that. He wasn't sophisticated enough to know that I was paid. And she did. And so she says to him, like, she, of course she's paid. Like, that's what daddy, that's he, daddy hired her. He can fire her. She can quit. Like, this is a, an arrangement. And, you know, that's a, that's a long way to fall from having a mom. I mean, to go from your mom tucking you into some paid 24-year-old American is a terrible fall. And she felt it. And she did a great job of keeping me at arm's length for a long, long time. And I didn't even know if I should be pursuing her that way because it was always going to be a temporary thing. And I couldn't commit to her for life or even for a year. And so maybe it would be inappropriate and unkind at some level for me to um, endear her in any way because the last thing she needed was another person coming and going um, and I feel like we kind of landed in a in a nice place it was a place of affection but not attachment and that might describe the way you wrote the book that's interesting that's really interesting it, it, it very well may you know, one of the things that I really liked, there's so many beautiful sentences and really smart moments Thanks. in this book. And I just, you know, there are kind of things you want to read aloud to somebody. And I love when your mother tells you, let me tell you something, Kelly. You changed me more than I changed you. Isn't that incredible? That's just. She said that. I mean, and I'll never forget it. I'll never, ever forget it. The idea that a child could change an adult was mind-blowing to me. I really thought that they were fixed and that everything she was doing was kind of this calculated, strategic move to yield the safest, best possible kid. I did not think that she was having actual emotional reactions to the situation, which I now know. I mean, in, in our house, I lead with emotion. You know, I would do well to pack it up a little bit and get more strategic. Um, but I, I'm a person first, you know, I'm feeling my life first and then thinking it through. And, um, I just thought that would, that just stopped me in my tracks. The idea that I had changed her in any way was a total paradigm shift. You end the book with, with some of your story and I'd like you to talk about writing that story and writing it again mm -hmm. in, from a, a different perspective and with the information that you've garnered out of the prose of the book itself. Mm -hmm. Well, it is, it's definitely a clarifying thing to write memoir. I mean, it really forces you to think hard about the episodes of your life. And I mean, the first observation is what do you remember? What, and then why do you remember these stories over all others? I mean, if you think of the sheer number of moments and experiences that we've all had, and then the tiny percentage of those that we retain, there must be something to what we retain. It must be very telling that we remember this and not that. So there's that whole set of work to do, which is why do, why do I remember these stories so well? Then, and then it's really getting your head around what has happened to you so far and what it means to you, you know? And there is this great opportunity when writing in this way, you know, writing nonfiction, to 
come to terms with something and to to get final about something. I mean, I think finality is generally a fool's game, but the idea that you could um, land on a kind of resting place with certain people and experiences is very appealing to me. I mean, I would like to go through my to-do list of um, situations I need to resolve in my mind and move through that list. And that's what writing nonfiction helps you do, is it helps you reevaluate parts of your life and and come to a conclusion about them, a conclusion for now. I mean, I often wondered while writing this book, I wonder how I'm going to feel about this with 10 more years of parenting under my belt. I wonder how I'm going to feel about this when my children are in their 30s and I have such a different take on them. Because when I was out with Lyft, which was uh, about being a parent to young children and and specifically about risk and parenthood, um, every woman who came to the reading said, you just wait. Like, you have to write another book after your children are teenagers. I have to hear what you have to say about teenagers. And so it was clear to me that you know, I was about to go through a seismic shift in terms of my perceptions of motherhood and um, of the way that children develop. And so I wonder now if I read Glitter and Glue when I'm 60, you know, will I laugh at myself and say, just as I did when I was reading my journals from when I was 24, and I'm laughing at myself thinking, oh, my God, Kelly, why do you think you know so much? You don't know anything. Like, I was so sure of myself at 24, and now I'm afraid that I'm still sure of myself at 46 and that at 60 I'm going to look back and say, oh, you're so ridiculous. But I think that what you wrote at 24 as it creeps into this and what you're writing now demonstrate the essential appeal of memoir writing, which is that you put your experience into in this case, the clearest language that there can be. And as readers, we experience it in the same way. And I think that there's it really captures a certain kind of uh, appeal of what reading itself, the reading activity, is all about. And you actually mentioned a little bit in here about reader response. Mm-hmm. And I think that's extremely critical mm-hmm. with, with a memoir. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, for those of you who have, don't have a master's in English literature uh, or a radio show about reading and writing, um, reader response is this theory that the reader is really in control of a book's meaning. So initially there was this idea that the writer was in control of it and the author's intent was kind of paramount. And then it was the text itself is in control of it. And so... If it's in the text, then that then that can be pointed to and said that is what this book's me this book means. And then this kind of breakthrough idea came out that the reader's in control of a text's meaning, and that really opens up a big can of worms because every reader's different, and some of the ways that they've spelled it out are, you know, what was the last book the reader read? Has this book ever read this writer before? Where was the reader sitting when they read this book? Did they read this book in three days or three months? Who gave them this book? How was their health when they read this book? And then larger issues like um, what is their sexual orientation? What class are they in? What is their nationality? What is their religion? I mean, all of that, of course, is coming to bear all the time on the way that a text is being internalized and evaluated by any given reader. But what I was saying in the book is that reader response um, 
is the way we are perceiving everything. I mean, we are all um, taking the world in through our own lens every single minute of every single day. I mean, even just sitting here looking at you, you look like one of my cousins. So I'm having a different response to you because you look like Brian Corrigan. And, you know, so that's my reader response to Rick Kleffel. Um, and so that was, it's, it's an interesting thing to me because another thing that comes up in reader response is that a reader changes over time. So if you were to read Huck Finn as a 15-year-old as an assignment in class and then you were to pick it up as a 46-year-old of your own accord, you'll have a different reading experience, obviously, and you will see things and perceive things and the text will mean different things to you. Uh, 30 years later, as is true of people, as is true of my mother, as is true of the Tanners. You know, they meant one thing to me when I was 24. They mean something very different to me now. I have had cancer. I have gone through chemotherapy. I've been on the surgery table. I had small children when I was going through it. Like naturally, I'm going to go to that experience in my mind. And so that's the gist of reader response. I've been speaking with Kelly Corrigan. Her new memoir is Glitter and Glue. Thank you for joining me, Kelly. Oh, thanks for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.